Hello, welcome to Story Radio. This month we have A Mean Spirit, written and read by Joan Treacy. A Mean Spirit. The turnout for John Brown's funeral couldn't be more disappointing. Everyone's bunched at the top of the church, and all the bare pews only make the place look emptier. Some people who should be here haven't turned up. Paddy Whelan, who does the deliveries to the shop, for one. Then there's John's brother, Mikey. I'm sure his absence hasn't gone unnoticed. They didn't always see eye to eye, and there wasn't much contact after he moved to Manchester, but it wouldn't have killed him to hop on a plane. Sure doesn't it cost next to nothing nowadays. It's strange seeing the coffin sitting up on the altar, John lying inside. You can tell it's made from maple, one of the cheapest types of wood you can buy. It gives off a terrible impression. John wasn't the sort to spend money unnecessarily, but he wouldn't like people to think he was a skinflint either. Then there's the photograph, placed on top in a cheap frame, plastic masquerading as wood. The picture is not flattering. John is carrying more weight than usual, and his eyes are half-closed. Father Joseph rushes through the ceremony in his usual abrupt manner. John hasn't been mentioned yet, but now it's time for the sermon. John was well known in our small community. He served us all faithfully in Brennan's grocers down through the years, and there's no doubt he'd be missed. Someone coughs violently, and then a distinct giggle can be heard straight afterwards. I turn to look at John's wife, Sheila, and their two children, Cormac and Deirdre, who are sitting in the front row, but there is no reaction from them. They continue to look straight ahead, expressionless. Father Joseph turns on a portable CD player, and the sound of that overused hymn, Be Not Afraid, fills the church. At least now the sorry lot of them have their heads bowed. I wonder why they didn't get the young girl with the haunting voice who performs at all the funerals around here. She's got a touch of class about her. Ah, there's no two ways about it. John's funeral could have been done a whole lot better. The younger brother gets up to say something. I hope he's written the speech out. He isn't a good speaker and is prone to stuttering when he gets nervous. He started reading, but the hand is shaking. I'm only going to say a few words. John was a good brother, a loving father and husband. He was hard-working and always did his best to provide a good service at the shop. He was a money-grabber, that's what he was, the local simpleton shouts from the back of the congregation. There is a ripple of laughter. Come on now, show some respect. Father Joseph sounds half-hearted. Mind you, John never liked him, and the feeling was reciprocated. He took him to task once, preaching that the loan business he ran, separate to the shop, was unethical, that it flew in the face of the Lord to take advantage of people's misfortune. John gave him his good back. What about clerical sex abuse, he asked. Do you not think that flies in the face of the Lord, Father? The coffin leaves the church, and they all file behind, close family first. John's employees, Matt and Seamus, are among them. Some would say they were his lackeys. They helped him run his loan business, and would call to anyone who owed him money to collect what was due. John considered them his friends. They often drank with him in cabinets, after they had paid his loan defectors a visit. If the borrowers had no money to pay, they had to hand over any valuables they might have, such as jewellery or antiques. Sometimes they had to give their furniture if they did nothing else. A half-decent leather suite or a solid oak dining table would go some way to clearing a debt. All John's so-called mourners are standing around laughing and joking. I'd love to remind them where they are. John's wife Sheila is standing away from everyone with the adult children. None of them look upset. Tommy Butler who lives down the lane from the family, has approached her. They embrace. I'd say he'd be glad to have this day over with, says Tommy. Sheila nods. John wasn't the most popular of men. That's right. 
Still, he left you fairly comfortable all the same, hot with the shop and the house. Yeah, says Sheila, with a distinct note of bitterness in her voice. After all these years of trying to get money out of him, just for ordinary things, like a new coat or a meal out in town, it'll take some getting used to it, I'm telling you. Tommy gives her arm a squeeze and walks off. We're at the graveyard and the sun's shining, but there's a cold wind blowing, and the mourners fasten up their coats and wrap their scarves tightly around themselves. The numbers are down to about half of the people who attended John's mass. They wouldn't give him the respect of seeing him buried. I keep separate from the group, but I can still hear their whispered conversations as the priest says prayers over the coffin. Jesus, I'm starving. I could murder the carvery and cabinets washed down by a pint. Yeah, well, don't count your chickens, Paddy. The miserable git probably left instructions to give us soup and sandwiches. Soup and sandwiches? More likely a few bowls of tato. I can see their backs shaking as they try to control their laughter. One of them snorts slightly and the shaking continues. We commit our brother John Brennan to the ground. Two crows perched on the graveyard wall, caw raucously and then fly off. I watch the coffin being lowered. John bought this plot a few years ago after his father died. It is in between two of the most exclusive graves in the cemetery. A cleric named Bishop Johnson is buried on one side underneath a huge monument on top of which sits a stone angel kneeling in prayer. A lady named Amelia Harrington is on the other, underneath a bed of snow-white pebbles, which go well with her black marble headstone, engraved with Celtic-style gold letters. At the time, he felt it would make him look important to be resting in between the movers and shakers of the local spirit world, and he paid twice the normal rate for the privilege. But how many years will it take before all who know him die off, and there will be no one to care where he lies? The grave will eventually be overgrown, and the headstone leaning at an angle. On behalf of the family, I'd like to invite you all to Cabinets for lunch. Now I'll be getting on, I've another burial starting in a few minutes. The graveside priest, whose haste to get away doesn't give an impression of reverence, marches off with his prayer book tucked under his arm. Here we are crushed into Cabinets. I can't help but notice that the numbers have increased since the graveyard. John would say they were only here to bleed him dry. It was what he often said in life, and they wanted to borrow more than they could pay back. I can only watch in disgust as the men go straight up to order pints. Sheila has put a thousand euro behind the bar. If it was done according to John's wishes, there wouldn't be a single cent allocated to alcohol. Not one of them cares that John is no longer with us. The men are lowering the pints as though they are dying of thirst. The women are pushing and shoving their way up for their carvery like they haven't eaten in a week. I overhear their conversation, conducted between mouthfuls of mash and gravy-coated roast turkey. In all the years he had the shop, he wouldn't give one person a cent of credit. His prices were twice as high as the supermarket in town. He knew he had us, because we didn't always want to drive the ten miles. One woman lowers her voice, and he took advantage of people who needed a few bob and had nowhere else to turn. One of the bargals has arrived over with a tray full of rich-looking desserts, covered in cream and strawberries, and with chocolate sauce drizzled all over them. Who's for Pavlova? Me, me, they all answer at once. Grabbing hands soon stripped the tray of plates. I'll be over tea and coffee in a bit. That would stick in John's throat. Cabinets charged three euro a head for tea or coffee. The same woman continues her rant, having rammed some meringue and cream into her mouth. There's no doubt that he took advantage of the desperate people in this town. Did you hear about Mags Nolan? The other women shake their heads. She went to John Brennan because she had no choice. She lost her husband only six months previous and nothing left to pay her son's college fees after the funeral costs, while he hounded her for the repayments. She pleaded with him to give her a bit of time to get the money together, but he refused, 
didn't those tugs call round to her house and because she had nothing else to give them, they took her engagement and wedding ring and her having just lost her husband. This tale of woe is followed by shocked gasps and then outbursts containing some choice language. All John had been doing was collecting his dues. He was operating a business, not a charity, and that's what he would say if he was here to defend himself. Look around, says another owl, wiping a bit of cream off her plate with her finger, then licking it clean. Not one person in this room liked John Brennan. They all nod. Move closer to me, and I'll tell you a bit of gossip. They all lean over the table towards her. Well, she says, you may or may not know that Sheila is doing a line with Tommy Butler. Yes. They all nod that they know about this outrageous betrayal. Well, she says, they are planning on selling the shop and moving to Spain. Sheila says she only has unhappy memories of this place and she wants to make a fresh start. John knew that Sheila was often angry with him, but he was the man of the house and what he said went. It's the way of all the best marriages. But it appears that she was cavorting with Tommy Butler and now while John lies in his freshly dug grave, that Ian lies in his bed with his wife. The worst of it is that if Sheila marries him, he'll get his greedy hands on a generous inheritance, the fruit of John's hard work. It's night time in the cemetery. The wind's picked up and it's giving off a fierce wail. It whistles around, making the angel wobble, and then knocks over a washing can filled with flowers, sitting on Amelia Harrington's white stones. And it is only now that I can see how exposed John's grave is. The moon appears from behind a cloud. It shines on a barn owl, swooping to grab a mouse, which was running across the freshly dug mound, and it lights up the crows on the cemetery wall, who torment you with their caw, caw, caw. Now the rain has come, and the wind drives it right onto my grave, but I, John Brennan, full of resentment that I paid twice the price for this unsheltered plot, have no choice but to lie here for all eternity. That was a mean spirit, written and read by Joan Tracy.